This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Frances Dinkelspiel. She is an award-winning author and journalist and is the 2016 Harvest Lecturer Distinguished Women Lecture Series. Her most recent book is Tangled Vines, Greed, Murder, Obsession, and an Arsonist in the Vineyards of California. Her first book was Towers of Gold, How One Jewish Immigrant Named Isaiah Hellman Created California. In, 19, in 2009, Francis co-founded the Berkeley Side, a news site about Berkeley, California. Berkeley Side has twice won the Best Community News Side Award from the Northern California Society of Professional Journalists. In 2013, Francis and her partner created NASH, a site about the food scene in the East Bay. Where were you born? Welcome to Berkeley. Thank you. Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? Well, um, my parents um, uh, divorced when I was very young, when I was two years old, and so I was raised primarily by my mother. I did see my father, but um, you know, she was a single parent for a long time, and I think I, what I really learned from her was you know, the importance of sort of striking out in your, on your own in the world and being strong and being there for your family and being independent. So I think um, in, in many ways she modeled that for me. Um, and you know my my father, you know, he, he was a lot of fun. He taught me to ski. He you know he, he was into sports and that kind of thing. And and so, um, I you know I learned that from him. And uh, what uh, were the examples of what a woman could do that you got from your mother? Well, I remember growing up. You know what women could do was mostly be teachers. And so for a long time, I thought I would be a teacher growing up. Um, but my mother at a certain point became a real estate agent. And I remember her studying to be a realtor. She had to take some horrendous tests that you know, were very difficult. And um, she passed those tests and she established her you know, realty business, I guess when I was maybe 10. And that was a real change because she had been a stay-at-home mom before that. And, and after that, she wasn't home when I came um, home after school. And uh, that was a big adjustment, but I did sort of see her make her way in the world. And I think that that um, was the beginning, you know, it was the beginning of changes about women. And it started me on the path to think that, you know, women were not just there to be married and pretty and, and smile, that we actually had, uh, you know, an intellect that should be explored. And in fact, I always hated it, you know, when I was young, when people would call me cute. I always wanted them to call me smart. Hmm. And uh, where did you do your undergraduate work? At Stanford University. But you said you went to Berkeley for a semester. I did go to Berkeley. Um, I, I didn't love Stanford in the beginning, so um, I, I, I took a class during the summer here at Berkeley, and then I, I applied for transfer to UC Berkeley, and I was accepted. Um, but I decided not to go because Berkeley told me I had to retake my freshman English class, the one I'd already taken at Stanford for pass-fail. And mm -hmm. for whatever reason, I, that was just too much for me. I thought, I can't do that. <laughs> and what did you major in at Stanford? I majored in history. In history. And so 
uh, history is something that's in your portfolio. That's true. So, you know, I'm a fifth generation Californian, and um, so I've always had grown up with a lot of stories mm -hmm. about California and the family, and I, um, I guess I just had it in my blood. I just really loved finding out about the world in different eras. And, uh, you know, so, you know, once I started studying history, I sort of never stopped. And your, your book uh, about your great-grandfather, which we'll talk about in a minute, proves you could be a historian. That's true. Um, you know, there is a, a thriving economy of independent historians in the world who aren't affiliated with universities. And um, one of the reasons I, I sort of thought I could go down that route was that I was, uh, I, I, I did some work for a man named Henry Mayer, who was an independent historian in Berkeley, and he'd also been my English professor at Urban High School. And uh, Henry wrote a number of books that did very well and were very well respected. And he sort of showed me a path that I could you know, do this historical research outside of a, a formal setting. I like to ask my guests what skills, temperament are required to be a journalist. Uh, well, curiosity, of course. You have to like asking people questions. You have to want to get to know the minutia of a subject, you know, at least for a day or two, um, in order to be able to write about it with some competence. Um, you have to, I think, have a certain amount of bravado, because often as a journalist, you have to go into situations that aren't necessarily comfortable, and you have to ask questions. And you have to ask questions of people who don't want to answer questions. So I, I think that's something that, that comes with time, uh, but you have to have the temperament that you can allow yourself to be disliked. I think that's a very important um, thing a journalist has to have. So you moved into doing an online newspaper. You founded Berkeley Side. Mm -hmm. uh, Talk about how that came about. So I became a journalist after I graduated from college. I worked in newspapers in upstate New York, and I came out to California and worked for the San Jose Mercury News for about nine years. And it was a great job, you know, I really enjoyed it. Um, I did leave the paper to work on my first book, Towers of Gold. Um, and once I'd finished that book, I, I, I was looking to uh, do some more freelancing. I, I'd done freelancing along the way for People Magazine, New York Times, lots of different publications. Um, and that was uh, around 2006, a time when uh, newspapers in California were really cutting back their staffs. And the Chronicle went from having you know 300 reporters to 100 reporters. And the first thing that was decimated was local news. And some friends and I were talking about the fact that there wasn't a lot of news, and there was not a lot of local news in Berkeley anymore. Uh, there was the Daily Cal and then the Daily Planet, but the Daily Planet was having some financial difficulties. So, so we thought, oh, well, let's just start a local site. It was sort of done on a whim. Um, and we were really surprised at the reaction the site got. People were uh, very excited to have sort of a, a neutral news organization writing about Berkeley. And we just found that our readership kept building. And, and, and so we sort of turned this casual endeavor into a serious journalistic enterprise. And how many uh, views do you get a month? 
Uh, well, you know, really depends. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, we can go up to 300,000 unique visitors a month when we have something really exceptional, some video or something. But right around now, we're probably between 180,000 to 200,000 unique visitors a month. And please remember that the population of Berkeley is 112,000. So we draw from around the region, not just Berkeley. And, and Berkeley is a unique place to be doing this sort of thing, isn't it? It is a unique place. I mean, there's so much news in Berkeley that we can't keep up with our small staff. And what makes Berkeley so interesting is the university is here, so you have world-class you know, intellectuals and professors who are doing really interesting research. You have the legacy of the 60s, um, which you know, uh, transformed Berkeley from being a more traditional Republican town into a very leftist democratic city. And as a result of that, people are very passionate about a lot of issues. And so there's no such thing as a small issue in Berkeley. Almost every issue um, is a big issue. And so there's a lot of good stuff to write about. So what, what is the business model? So the business model is um, we are, uh, we are a, a for-profit um, news site, though I you know, uh, take those words with a grain of salt. We have a number of different revenue streams. We sell advertising on our site, um, and we sell advertising in our, our, our email newsletters that go out. Um, we have a very strong membership base. People in Berkeley who are excited about having a local news source mm -hmm. sign up to donate to our site, uh, you know, $5 a month, $25 a month, mm -hmm. one-time donation, um, and that's a growing part of our business. And the other thing we do, uh, are we do events. Uh, in the fall, we have an event called Uncharted, the Berkeley Festival of Ideas. It's an ideas festival, really the only one in the Bay Area. And over two days, we bring really extraordinary thinkers in from around the country to talk about what we might term sort of dangerous ideas or unusual ideas. And um, usually, uh, it's on a one-on-one -on -one format or someone gets up and does a small performance. It's not a conference per se, but it's more like a festival. And so we have about 400 attendees at, at Uncharted, and that seems to be growing every year. So that's another source of revenue for Berkeley. And, and you, you also cover the news, right? I mean, in other words, I noticed that you, you have links to announcements that have come out in the news. Yes, yeah, so every day we do something called the Berkeley Wire, which is an aggregation of stories from around the web about Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of stories uh, you know, about Berkeley. Like, for example, uh, Chancellor Dirks announced yesterday that the university is facing a $150 million deficit this year. That's a story we link to. Um, so we just try to make it that Berkeley side is a one-stop shop for people who want to know about Berkeley news. Not only the news that we cover with our reporters, um, the, the pictures that we have, but also what other people are doing. And, and tell, tell me about the opportunities that online newspapers offer. One of the things you said, a lot of your friends were, were being fired, basically, as, as the employment in traditional newspapers was declining. Well, it's very expensive uh, to produce uh, news printed on paper. And as you may know, you know, the entire news business is sort of 
um, imploding and struggling to find a, a business model that will work. A number of newspapers have gone to online only or online two or three days a week and delivery just a few days a week. Uh, so going online uh, gives you uh, certain opportunities. First of all, it doesn't really cost much to produce it. Um, and secondly, uh, it can be seen anywhere in the world. You don't have to hold a physical copy of Berkeley side to know what's going on. So, you know, people who are in Asia or in, in France or in South America, you know, they might, they're, they're Berkeley residents all around the world and we have readers who come, from, who, who come from all over to read the news about Berkeley. And that's the advantage of online. And it's also easy to make things go viral because you know, people put it on Facebook or Twitter and, and they spread the word uh, online, which is not easy to do with a paper product. So th this is the way newspapers are gonna go, especially if they're based in a local community. Is that fair to say? In other words? Well, the trend is certainly in that direction. Um, you know, I haven't, yeah, I, I don't see the San Francisco Chronicle announcing it's going to cut its print edition. So I think um, we have a couple more years before we see how things play out. Uh, certainly the percentage of money that newspapers are bringing in through their advertising and their print product has dropped precipitously, pushing people to the web. But I don't know, I think there will always be some large newspapers like the New York Times, the LA Times, maybe the Washington Post, and the Chronicle that will have a print edition, but probably eventually uh, there will be very few print newspapers in the U.S. And, and what is the biggest constraint in doing a newspaper like this? What, what are the main obstacles, some of which you didn't anticipate? Um, well, before I, I'll answer that question, I think one of the main drawbacks of an online publication only is that you don't have serendipity. Like I know that I, I often read my New York Times on my phone, but I also get it delivered at home. And when you open the paper, you, um, you sometimes are drawn to articles that you might not otherwise be drawn to when you're looking at them online. Um, so, uh, you know, that is, you know, one casualty of online. Well, what are the drawbacks? I mean, it's very, very difficult uh, to make a viable business with the news. It's, you know, it's, you know, we have not yet mastered it. We still need uh, more, um, you know, revenue in order to really succeed. I mean, the jury's still out if we will be here, you know, 10 years from now. Um, and a lot of the biggest online publications like BuzzFeed or Vox, they're all uh, financed with venture capital money. And even though they get lots of readers and they are getting advertisers, they're still you know, not really paying their own way. They're, they're financed uh, with outside money. And do you have advertisers? Or yes, we have advertisers, yeah. lots of advertisers. Tell us about Nosh. So Nosh is um, a very popular product. You know the Bay Area is a foodie haven and the East Bay is a, a mecca for foodies. Um, and Nosh covers the food scene and the wine scene. And we launched it a couple of years ago and it's become very, very popular. Mm -hmm. I think in part because it's mostly happy news. I mean, it's mostly, you know, sensory news and things like that. Although I do a lot of reporting on wine and there's been a lot of local wine crime that I've reported for Nosh. So there is of course some hard reporting going on in Nosh as well. Mm -hmm. And do you recommend restaurants or? 
You know, we don't um, do traditional restaurant reviews like the Chronicle does, but we, we introduce restaurants and we show pictures of their food and we talk about the restaurants. So when people are looking for new places to eat, they can come to Nosh to find them. So let's now talk about your first book, uh, Towers of Gold. And this book is about your great-grandfather. Tell us about how the book came about, because curiosity led you to the California Library, and you were expecting to find a couple of letters, but you found a lot more. So um, I took a leave of absence from the Mercury News because I wanted to try some other kind of writing. I thought I would do some first-person essays. And as I was doing those essays, I thought, well, I'll just stick a little family history in these essays, and it'll make them more interesting. Um, so I, I knew that my great-great-grandfather, Isaiah Hellman, his papers were at the California Historical Society. So I thought I'd go down there for an afternoon and sort of look through them and use the you know information I gleaned for my uh, personal essays. Uh, but when I got to the California Historical Society and asked to see uh, you know the Isaiah Hellman papers, um, the archivist said, "Sure, but which box would you like to mm -hmm. see?" And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, we have 40 boxes of Hellman documents. Uh, so that was a very big surprise to me. And um, you know, I started combing through these, these documents. And I started noticing that there were all these letters from these iconic California figures like Henry Huntington, Collis Huntington, Levi Strauss. And these were people who were Isaiah Hellman's friends and business partners. And the more I looked at these, um, at these, these documents, I realized that there was a great untold story in those boxes about uh, the rise of California from a, a frontier economy to a modern economy. And uh, I decided, well, maybe I should uh, write a book about Isaiah Hellman and tell that story. So curiosity led you to the library, but then talk about your emotions when you realize the uh, kind of boxes upon boxes of uh, his work were available. Well, I think writers choose a subject always, um, and there's some psychological reasons for it, and maybe the writer's not necessarily aware of it when um, they choose that subject. And I think for myself, um, I explained my parents' divorce when I was two, and my father died when I was 16, and I didn't really know him all that well. And I, although I knew his side of the family, I didn't know them well. Um, and so I do believe I was on some quest to sort of uh, reunite with the Hellman side of my family. And um, um, so by going through these boxes and finding out about this history, um, it led me to sort of uh, learn more about this, this family that I was a part of, but I was really estranged from. And um, it was a great journey because Isaiah Hellman came to California in 1859, a penniless Jew from Bavaria. Uh, you know, he'd been, uh, Jews were not citizens in, in, in Germany at that time. He came to California, which was not a country that had a, a strict uh, hierarchy. People had come here to get rich off gold. It wasn't like the East Coast. And Hellman came uh, to California, moved to LA, 
and he eventually rose to become one of the most prominent financiers and bankers on the Pacific Coast, eventually owning Wells Fargo Bank and other institutions. And so that was a pretty you know, amazing Horatio Alger story. And uh, what was in these boxes? In other words, was it the chronology of his whole business career? Uh, well, uh, not everything was in the boxes, but a lot of things were in the boxes. Uh, like in his, the first box, there was a report card of his from Germany, in, yeah, in the 1850s, and letters from his brothers, um, letters from his relatives. There were business letters, as I described. There were um, uh, prospectuses for bond deals. There were lists of his wife's uh, shopping expeditions. Uh, which was great, the clothes she bought uh, and things like that. Um, he was a pack rat, so he even saved stuff like when he had a receipt from buying a newspaper. So, you know, that was tucked in his papers. Um, and you know, so there were just some really, really great surprises. Like I came upon this folder and there were all these telegrams about, thank God, you know, the assassin's bullet went astray, you know, we're so happy you're alive and all this stuff. And I didn't know what that was. And I had to do some research uh, looking through old newspapers to find out that someone had tried to assassinate Isaiah Hellman in the 1890s in San Francisco. And, you know, that was a story that had never made it down through the generations. But, you know, the clue was in those, in those papers. And we have to say here, let, I, I want to separate what made him a successful businessman in your view the skills that he had developed in Germany mm -hmm. or that he developed over time here? That's a good question. I, I mean, it's impossible really for me to know. I, I think he was a very, very, <laughs> very smart man. Uh, I think he came to California and he must have carried the burden of generations of Jews before him who had not been allowed to work in the professions that they wanted. You know, Jews were very limited in what they could do. His uncle was a cattle dealer. His father was a weaver. And suddenly he arrived in the United States. He had some bookkeeping training. Um, and he went to work in a dry goods store of his cousins. And he apparently immediately sort of improved their business. So I think he had an innate business sense. Um, and he just sort of followed that instinct. He, he started to buy land in, um, in Southern California, and he opened his own store. Um, and it was on, almost by accident that he opened a bank. And of course, the bank was really his first major accomplishment as a businessman. Um, and so I think he, banks were illegal in California for a very long time because uh, the lawmakers saw California could be run on gold or, or coin. Um, and so he opened a bank when it was illegal and he had to feel his way how to, how to make that bank succeed. And I think he taught himself a lot um, about finance along the way. And uh, <clears throat> when we compare him, he's a venture capitalist, it sounds like. Is that fair? A little bit. He, yeah. Both a banker and a venture capitalist. And in an environment where California hadn't developed yet. So he was also a visionary. In other words, he, having accumulated money in banking, he saw what would be worth investing in. Exactly, yes. So he invested in the water company in Los Angeles. 
Um, you know, everybody <clears throat> remembers, you know, uh, Chinatown, the movie. Um, well, Isaiah's Hellman, until 1902, owned the majority of the stock in the Los Angeles Water Company, and he eventually agreed to sell it to L.A. Uh, he was very involved in laying down trolley uh, rails in L.A., and he got involved in power and land, and he was a UC regent. Um, but, but, yeah, California was a frontier. I mean, there was, when he arrived, there was no scheduled uh, stagecoach service between Los Angeles and San Francisco. There was no train. Uh, there was no real telegraph line. And so, you know, a lot of the people who came to California in the 1850s got in on the ground floor of investing in a lot of these um, infrastructure projects. You know, a lot of people went bust from it. Hi Isaiah Hellman did not, which I, say, I think suggests he was really an extraordinary businessman. But there was tremendous opportunity uh, in California at that time. And, and by investing in all these things, he really shaped the future of California, whether he stayed in the business or not. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, he played a very big role in a, in a, in a large number of businesses. Um, and, you know, uh, as he became a bigger and bigger banker, he, he started something called the Farmers and Merchants Bank in Los Angeles. Uh, in 1871, which was the first successful bank in LA, and it brought capital to the region. So mm -hmm. also, you know, uh, California was starved for, for large capital for building. Um, so he bought capital, he eventually bought something called the Nevada Bank, which he uh, merged with Wells Fargo Bank, and he was able to sort of, you know, ha help people raise money to do a lot of projects around the state. And uh, I want to talk about his identity as a, a, a German, an American, and a Jew, because he, he was very committed, it seems, to his American identity. Talk a little about that. Um, yes, he was very committed to being an American. I think, as I mentioned earlier, America and California in particular had been really good to him. He flourished here. Um, however, you know, he was also very Jewish. He was involved in building the first synagogue in Los Angeles. He was involved in a synagogue up in San Francisco when he eventually moved up here in 1890. Um, and, um, you know, where his identity as being an American and a Jew sort of started to conflict came around World War I um, because uh, there was, of course, this whole rise of the Zionist movement, and there was this, um, you know, after Russia had killed so many Jews during the pogroms of the early part of the 20th century, there was a real push uh, to create a homeland for Jews in what was then, you know, Palestine. And Isaiah Hellman felt very conflicted about that for a couple reasons. Number one, he felt Russia, and Poland and all those countries should make Jews citizens of those countries and give them full rights, which they did not have. Um, or he felt that um, you know, uh, you know, Jews in America had great opportunity. He was very concerned that um, if you created a state of Israel, not only would you be pushing out the Arab population. But then, um, you know, Jews would be sort of shunted aside. They would be told to go to Israel as opposed to America. And he felt that America was, you know, the, the greatest country and that, um, you know, that he was, you know, an American first and that that was really important and that other Jews should have that opportunity. As somebody who is a family member, but a researcher and a journalist, 
What, what do you see as his greatest success in a very successful career? That's a really good question. Well, I do think the fact that he was Jewish and he made such a large contribution to the development of California is probably his most significant legacy. Um, but clearly, Wells Fargo Bank is, you know, what his, his masterpiece or whatever. Um, he uh, purchased the bank in 1905 at a time when the banking business was sort of a minor part of Wells Fargo. It had been primarily an express business uh, up to that time. And uh, he helped turn it around and make it a really strong bank. And um, he died in 1920. Uh, but after that, uh, you know, the bank merged with hundreds of banks around the country. And, you know, now it's one of the dominant banks in the United States. And, you know, clearly that wasn't Isaiah Hellman's doing, but he certainly laid the foundation for that. Now, your second book is called Tangle Vines with a secondary title. Greed, murder, obsession, and an arsonist in the vineyards of California. So what led you to this book? Was there, it seems like there was a connection because your, your grand, great-grandfather had invested in wine. Right. So there was a connection. So I, that was one of the f interesting things I found out when I researched Isaiah Hellman's life, that he had bought a controlling interest in 1901 in, in something called the California Wine Association. And I didn't really know what that was. And it turns out that the California Wine Association was a monopoly that eventually controlled 80% of the production and distribution of wine in California uh, until prohibition. It was this enormous operation that had vineyards everywhere from Southern California uh, to Napa and Sonoma. It had huge wine processing facilities around the state. And it sort of had a lock on selling wine around the world. And I, um, you know, I didn't find a lot of, 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 of books out about the California Wine Association, so I always had it in my mind that I might want to write more about that. And then in 2009, I was freelancing for the New York Times, and I, uh, I pitched a story about a trial that was coming up about a man named Mark Anderson who had been charged with setting a fire in a wine warehouse in Vallejo that destroyed four and a half million bottles of wine worth a quarter of a billion dollars, making it the largest wine involving, excuse me, the largest crime involving wine in history. And um, while doing that, I remembered that I had a cousin who had put a bunch of wine of Isaiah Hellman's in that warehouse, and that wine had burned up. And that wine had been made in 1875 in Southern California. And, you know, I'd, I'd known about it, but I hadn't really thought about it. Uh, so I wrote that story for the um, New York Times. And then I just started to think harder about, you know, what was lost when all that, you know, 130-year-old port in Angelica was burned up and did it matter? You know, wine is meant to consume. Does it matter if someone drinks it or a fire, uh, you know, destroys it? And that sort of got me on the trail uh, to writing a story about the crime and about this vineyard that these bottles came from. And the vineyard, as it turns out, tells really the story of the history of California uh, sort of in a nutshell as well. And um, what is it about wine? You were obviously fascinated for personal reasons, but throughout history, wine fascinates everybody. It's a lexer. 
but something else is going on, as your book proves. Right, yeah, so that was also a question I wanted to explore. Why do people like wine so much? I mean, if you think about it, the Greeks and the Romans both had wine gods. Uh, people don't worship milk the same way, or even water. Um, and um, so, you know, I, I, I try to ask a lot of people about why they like wine so much. And it turns out, I think, that people like wine because um, it makes them feel good. You drink it, you get a little intoxicated, um, or you just get a nice warm glow, and it sort of breaks down uh, sort of inhibitions. And so people are able to come together when they drink wine, and they're able to connect in a way that they might not otherwise connect. And I think that this is really um, a major reason why people are so fascinated by wine. And of course it can be a very, it can be an intellectual endeavor as well because, you know, wine has its own history, it has its own um, characteristics. You know, you, uh, you, you, one wine made from grapes grown on one vineyard um, may taste very different from grapes made from a vineyard 10 miles away. You open a bottle of wine at the beginning of dinner that wine might taste very different at the end of dinner as oxygen sort of um, pervades uh, the wine. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a beverage that has a lot of different components to it. It's almost like it has a personality. And I think that's why people are so interested in it. And also, it seems like uh, <clears throat> you're suggesting implicitly that it, it reflects, wine reflects some of mankind's worst characteristics, but also some of its most noble characteristics, because vineyards are often owned by small family, small small business owned by a family, uh, and uh, so talk a little about that because there's the good and the bad, and it seems to attract quite a number of scoundrels. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think when we think of the wine business, particularly living in the Bay Area, we think about the bucolic Napa Valley with its, you know, undulating hills of grapevine and its beautiful blue skies and the great wine and the great food you can have up there and, and the Napa Valley lifestyle, which, you know, is something everybody can enjoy. Uh, but as it turns out that there is a very dark side to wine, um, almost beginning from its origins in California. Uh, the first winemaker was Father Junipero Serra, the Franciscan missionary who uh, created the mission system. And he imported wine cuttings from Baja, California. And to grow wine, he, um, he used the Native Americans who had converted to Christianity uh, to make that wine. And of course, those Native Americans, uh, once they got in the mission system, they couldn't leave. And in many ways, they were like indentured servants. And that relationship between winemaking and uh, indentured servitude for the Native Americans really continued through the 1870s. Um, the Californios treated the Native Americans badly, and the very first law passed by the California legislature in 1850 was nicknamed the Indian Indenture Act, and it allowed white people to identify a Native American as drunk or indolent, um, at which uh, point a sheriff could arrest that uh, Native American and fine him, and generally the uh, Indians didn't have money to pay the fines, and so the, the sheriff would then auction off that Indian's labor 
uh, to the highest bidder uh, in increments of weeks, of a week at a time. And the, the, the sheriff would pocket a percentage of that, and the municipalities like Los Angeles would pocket the rest of it. And so the early history of wine in California um, really was based on sort of like slave labor. And I think this is something that people don't really know. I mean, I didn't know it. I had no idea about it. Um, and it is one of the, you know, ugly uh, aspects uh, to wine history. But there are, you know, other ones too. Greed, the subtitle of my book has greed and murder in there because there's, there's a lot of greed and murder in the, in the vineyards. And, and interestingly enough, it's not just individuals who, whose uh, sordidness is reflected in the wine. This gentleman who burned down the, uh, the warehouse where everybody's wine was, which was a real, a real tragedy for people who had wine there for many reasons. But you tell the story of how the, the bubble before 2008 came to the wine industry and the exorbitant prices that were being paid for a bottle of wine in the neighborhood of 200,000 plus. But in the end, the wines were faked. So it's a, it's a product which even the master class can be taken in by what they're buying. So there's a kind of a prestige in owning the wine that may be worthless, but it, you know, I'm willing to pay 200,000 for a bottle. So like any product, when something is rare and uh, people want it and people are willing to pay very high prices for it, um, so probably the most coveted wines in the world are French wines. Uh, French Burgundy is very uh, desired, as is French Bordeaux. And um, uh, in 2008, sort of the auction world changed because Hong Kong uh, lowered the taxes it charged on importing wine. And this sort of created a frenzy in China for people who wanted to buy these, this very expensive wine and they started bidding crazy prices at auctions around the world. And there was a, a man named Rudy Kurniawan who was an Indonesian man living in Southern California who sort of took advantage of this. Uh, he had a really sophisticated palate um, and he, um, I guess, came from a family of means and for a long period of time he was just buying bottles and bottles and bottles of wine and sharing it with you know a lot of um, people who called themselves young Turks who had made a lot of money on Wall Street and um, so there was this frenzied environment and uh, what what Kurniawan eventually ended up doing was he would take some of these original bottles and go to restaurants and share them with his friends dropping you know $300,000 on his black Amex and then he would ask the restaurants to ship the bottles back to his home and once he was at his house, he would concoct fake versions of, of you know, of fancy Burgundy and Bordeaux and, um, and then sell them um, as the real thing. And he, um, he actually, this, this, this auction house called Acker Merrill in New York conducted two auctions of Kurniwan's cellar and sold his wines for millions of dollars. And some of the most important, you know, People in the world bought that wine, including uh, William Koch, who is the brother of the Koch brothers. He bought a number of bottles of fake wine from uh, from Rudy Kurniawan. Anyway, um, 
you know, Kurniawan was eventually arrested, charged, and, and convicted of fraud. Uh, but what what what's happened is, you know, William Koch has been public about all the bad bottles he bought, but a lot of other people who who bought bad bottles are hiding them because some people speculate they want to sort of get rid of them on the market. They don't want to announce that oh, they bought God. bad wine. So it did cast a pall over the whole high-end wine market. And, and so the bottom line is people don't often know what they're getting. Grapes are stolen from land and then sold as something else. Uh, in his case, it was, he, he was using old bottles to, to uh, uh, prove the value which was a lie. Right, right. Yeah. Wines are faked all around the world. They're usually high-end wines, um, and, but it's a big problem. It's a growing problem. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's one where, um, you know, probably a lot of fake wine gets out on, on the market. But I would say most of that fake wine is going to be at the level of probably that you don't drink or I don't drink. It's for people who, you know, really spend a lot of money on wine. It's not going to be your average $25 bottle of wine. This uh, gentleman, uh, Mark Anderson, he was a real scoundrel. And he burned his warehouse down, and you tell that story very effectively. And I'm, I'm uh, as a family that had some wine there. What are your feelings when you realize that it's happened? Well, so yeah, Mark Anderson um, set this fire in 2005, and it destroyed a lot of wine, and it ruined a lot of people's businesses. Um, uh, the wine, uh, some winemakers were told by their insurance companies that they were not insured for that wine because it was in transit. And so a number of people went out of business. Um, you know, a lot of winemakers uh, lost placement in restaurants, uh, wine lists and, and stores. And, you know, it took them a couple of years in order to get their wine back up on the market. So it was a very devastating fire to the wine, um, wine business. Um, for my cousin, um, who had put the wine from my great-great-grandfather in this warehouse, or she'd actually lent it to a winemaker who had put it into the warehouse for her without her permission and without her knowledge, she was really devastated because she felt she was supposed to be the caretaker of this wine um, and that, you know, she thought she was doing a good job trying to sort of, you know, make it last, and she didn't. You know, her actions sort of led to its destruction. So I think she was really distraught about it for a very long time. And in fact, I did open some some of this port uh, for my book, and I invited her to come and join me, and she just didn't want to have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. She just, she really can't even think about the episode. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I think that the way she feels is how, you know, you know, Thousands of people feel the, the, the fire ruined the vintages of 90 um, wineries in California and the collections of like 44 individual collectors. What lessons do you think you've learned from your career that you might pass on to uh, students who envision being a journalist slash historian? Well, so for me, what really drives me are stories. I love finding good stories. And I think, um, of course, as a journalist, there are a million stories every day that are great. But I think there are also lots and lots of fabulous stories 
in history um, that have not uh, been told or haven't been told in a very long time and, and could be told in a very engaging manner that reaches a broad audience. And you know, narrative nonfiction is becoming more and more popular and I think that's because people love stories told in a sort of an exciting manner. So I guess I would encourage people to go out and you know, go to the Bancroft Library and, and search through the files and find something that looks untold and interesting and, and try to you know, tell it uh, in, in a magazine format or a book format or something. And, and how do you develop the skills to tell somebody else's story? Well, that's a good question. I think that that takes time. I think you have to do a lot of writing. Um, and journalistic writing is very different from writing a book. I mean, when I wrote uh, Towers of Gold, I had to sort of teach myself how to write in a different way. I had to teach myself how to write a book that had, you know, a narrative arc, that it was scene-based, that was character-based, you know, trying to uh, draw things out and, and engage readers. and. Um, you know, I, that took a lot of experimentation, but you know, I, I think I eventually succeeded at it. So I think you have to, you know, take off your journalism hat and put on your sort of novelist hat, even if you're not a novelist, uh, to tell those kind of stories. And, and what will online journalism do to storytelling? Will it further it or undermine it? I think it's furthering it. I think there, there, you know, there's there are lots of great websites that have long-form journalism on them. There's some really good reporting going on, um, and you know, getting a book published is is really hard to do these days. Um, you know, you're supposed to have a platform. You know, there, are, and even if you get a book published, it's very hard to get a book noticed. There's so many books that are coming out. Uh, so, you know, uh, there are alternatives to writing a book, and you, you know, one of them is finding a great website and publishing online. And, and how, what role will video play in telling the story online? I think video plays a huge role, as do, do images. I mean, people like to look at pictures. Um, it's hard just to look at type online. And graphics, you know, do very well online, too. So, you know, nowadays when you train to be a reporter, unlike when I was training, you don't just learn how to, you know, write a story. You learn how to use, um, to do a podcast, you, knew, you learn how to do a video, you learn how to combine all those things together to tell a story. So there's a new kind of journalist out there using all those techniques uh, uh, to sort of get the news out. Well, on that note, I want to thank you very much for coming on our program, and we'll look forward to going to your websites and buying your books. And what is the URL for Berkeley Side and for Nash. Okay, so uh, Berkeley Side is you know BerkeleySide.com, and uh, you can find Nosh on Berkeley Side, and um, my website is FrancisDinkelspiel.com. Okay, all right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.